Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes. My name's Tim. This is Chris. This is Adam. And tonight we're going to be answering your questions. We have a bunch of questions that listeners emailed to us, sent us on Facebook group, on our Facebook group, sent us on Blue Sky, and we're going to be answering those on the show tonight. We're excited to get into these. Some great questions. Now, if you send us questions, we don't get to them tonight. We'll get to them on a future episode. We had too many questions we could cover in our normal episode length tonight. And if you ask us multiple in one email, it's okay. We save some of them for the next time. Hopefully, we'll get to most of your questions tonight, but there's still several more we'll get to in a future episode. But I'm really excited about this. This was fun to uh, hear what some of our listeners were curious about and uh, interested in chatting with you all about these tonight. So let's just jump right in on this. And then after we finish the Q&A here, after we finish this little mailbag section, we'll talk about some games that are on our table as well. So some recent gameplays to stick around for if you're not interested in our thoughts on these questions. By the way, we keep calling this the mailbag episode, but that just seems so old fashioned. Maybe we need to change it to the inbox episode. The inbox. I like that. I don't know. I, I will see what I title the episode. I, th- I like the inbox, so that's good. We'll find we'll find some good clever name for it. When you hear your fans writing old school letters using the mail system, there's some wax seals on the outside of their envelopes with some Ooh. fan art, sending it to a joint PO box. We need a PO. Guys. I was going to say I'm not giving them my home address. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'll give them my email inbox. I don't think my home address is going to go on the show though. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, let's just jump right into this. So we had a whole bunch of listeners send us questions, and we'll see how much we get through in the time tonight. But again, we'll get to more in a future episode. The first question came from Justin. Justin said, what games or mechanisms have the three of you switched your opinion on? Chris seems to slowly becoming a fan of some trick takers. I can see Chris being the ringleader for trick takers in the future. It seems like that's all he wants to talk about these days. It's crazy. That's a joke. He's not serious. (laughs) I'd say for me, I am coming around on worker placement, actually. So first, you know, strict worker placement it just is so boring to me. I think Champions of Midgard is a little rough for me. I, I think that's a very strict worker placement, right, Tim? And it's um so that was that one's okay. I don't mind playing it. But then Tim introduced me to Underwater Cities, or we played that together or something. And that was kind of worker placement. You had to match this little piece with this other little color, and then you got to activate this thing or that thing. And then Dune Imperium came along and now you have a card that has to match this, and you have to have a worker available that can go there. So this sort of blending or this enhancement or variations on worker placement, I think is such a nice way to take an action. It's such an easy way. Tim always kind of preaches about this. It's just an easy way to get the game going. A very understandable, I'm going to put this thing here and that's the action I get to do. It's super clear, super crisp, and it's just a very clean mechanism and it's hard to deny it anymore but it's these variations not the strict put a guy here do the thing oh now that spot's blocked off ha 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 like that is a little annoying for me but this uh refinement on worker placement has been very nice to watch that's an interesting call out adam i'm glad to hear you say that i can't wait to introduce you to a ton more worker placement games Mm. be be careful there adam be careful (laughs) (laughs) but i get it like because worker placement there's so many games that use it it's such a perfect mechanism of you taking actions marking that the action you took and also putting some restrictions on other players but it, it's it, it's a weird balance, and I can't even necessarily describe what makes it work so perfectly with some games, and then just fall kind of flat in other games. And I'm kind of there was a time where I was starting to say like I love worker placement, I'm not tired of it. But then every once in a while, I get introduced to a new worker placement game, and I'm like, oh, this is just perfect. And then some of the classics still really hold up. So 
that's that's cool. That's cool. I'm glad you're seeing the seeing the light here. What's sort of a classic one that stands out for you, Tim? Agricola is uh, like number one. I mean, that one. Every single time I play it, the way that they made those, both the tightness of the spaces and how restrictive it is, but also the uh, what do you call it, the accumulation spaces. Yeah. yeah. That is the key mechanism in that game that just makes it work perfectly every time. And that's totally what Dune Imperium did. They totally ripped that off <laughs> yeah, of yeah. Agricola. And it's one of the funnest parts of yep. the game. You're right. It's it's so cool. Well, for me, it was a, a pretty clear winner here. If you listen to some of our earliest episodes, I was pretty down on anything that had to do with like troops on a map, area control, like just that you take this thing for me and I can't plan. I can't like just do my own thing. I used to hate that stuff. It was so frustrating to me. It always felt like, oh, someone's coming in just being mean. And I don't feel that way at all anymore. I love troops on a map games. Some of my favorite games, some of the games that I have the most fun at are these area control games, Blood Rage, Rising Sun. What's that game, that uh, the, the Battle for Rokugan? Yeah. You know, that's a game that I probably would have hated a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And I absolutely love it now. So the other one that, that that's in the Kemet series, I forget what the third one that we played was. Oh, yeah. Cyclades. Oh, Cyclades. Yeah. Cyclades. What a wonderful yeah. freaking game that I just had so much fun playing that I don't think I would have enjoyed much a few years ago. So that's what's really shifted for me. Why did it? Sh- I don't know. I think it's just like chilling a little bit, just like playing a lot of games, realizing <laughs> you can't win everything. You can't have control of everything. And then finding that some games create fun for, you know, like for the whole table. And when it's fun for the whole table, when there's these big moments that that's fun for me as well. So I think it's just been a little bit of a just shift in what I realized was making a great experience in a game. That for me, I I think this is a great question because one of the best things that I've found about developing myself as a gamer has been changing my opinions on things. I love to change my opinions on things, especially when it means that I'm able to appreciate something that I never really did before. And so I've been getting hotter and colder on things, primarily hotter, but there's been a couple of things that I've, I've cooled off a little bit on, but there's a bunch that I've been getting hotter and hotter on. So the one thing that I would say I've cooled on a little bit is in complete contrast to what Tim just said, <laughs> area control and heavy aggression games. Not that I don't like them. It's kind of, sort of the same thing you just said, Tim. I, I love them when it's a good game, but I don't want to do it all the time. And what I feel like I've been getting much warmer on in comparison to that is things like worker placement games. Or even, like Justin said, a trick-taking game. I'm really trying to keep an open mind and just be able to have fun with whatever I'm playing. And I think when I started playing games, I really kind of tried to pigeonhole myself, you know, sort of like, you know, when you're an adolescent, you sort of say, this this is who I am. I'm going to wear it on my T-shirt, everything. Everybody's going to know what I'm into. And I think I kind of did that with myself. I'm like, "Ah, I'm a guy who really likes aggressive uh, area control games. I don't like these stupid worker placement games. They're boring. And yet, as I keep playing and playing, I'm finding that all of those things that I was a little bit sketched out about before, I'm actually starting to really appreciate, especially when they're done well. I want to talk about the converse of Justin's question as well, sort of games or mechanisms that I've I've cooled on. And I don't know if you guys think I've that's all I want to do is area control and fight, 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 but it's not. I you know, having played so many games, there's I like when the area control has a bit of a variation or refinement to it as well. It's not just jump in this territory and fight, fight, fight and roll some dice. It's like, oh, if I, you know, it's the opportunity cost, the decisions, what you're going to lose by moving in here and try to take this territory. It's always going to open something else up. So when those decisions 
are really clever, like Ankh or like Rising Sun or like Blood Rage, for instance, all of those area control games, there's something else to them. And that's what I have come to appreciate more and more with the area control mechanism. Nice. So, so the next question we got was from Christian. And Christian said, what are your thoughts on updated versions or version 1.5 sequels? For example, TI3 to TI4, which would be Twilight Imperium 3. And now there's Twilight Imperium 4, the fourth edition of the same game. I'm asking because there's a lot of discourse when Dune Imperium Uprising was approaching its release date. Many people were upset that it made their OG copies of Dune Imperium obsolete and chalked it up to a cash grab. So I haven't been around long enough to see a lot of these. I think Dune Imperium is one of the first ones that I'm seeing with Dune Imperium Classic and now Dune Imperium Uprising. I haven't had a chance to look at that. It's for that game specifically, I... I want Uprising to be crappy because I don't want all my old stuff to be rendered obsolete. So I'm hoping that it's bad, but I think it's going to be so darn good and so refined that I'm going to have to take a look at it eventually. Am I ever going to give up my all my stuff for Dune Imperium? I don't think so because I've got everything pretty much. As far as um, I also have Eclipse Second Dawn, but that was coming out right as I was getting to the hobby as well. So I jumped on that Kickstart. It's one I had my eye on and I always wanted to get why. I don't know. Just from reputation, what I'd heard about, I've never even played the first version, but the Second Dawn, I'm completely happy with it. And from what I read, most people prefer Second Dawn, too. Now, if I had everything for the first one, I'm sure I would be upset. And what are you going to do with that first version when everyone says that one and a half or second version is better? So I could see it being a tough decision to grapple with, a nostalgia factor. So there's a lot to wrestle with when something gets refined and the you know preponderance of people say that it's a better version. That's a tough one. Hey, you guys. So here's a question for you. So when we're talking about these updates, does that include things like the master edition of Lagranha, which has a couple of different little rules, but it doesn't really erase the old game. And I think there was a similar thing that's happening with Teotihuacan. Is th- does that count as an edition, a second edition, or are we just strictly talking about things that are called like second edition? I think Christian's intent was on that vein, because I think if you have Teotihuacan and then you see this deluxe edition come out, you might feel bad about the fact that yours isn't the updated deluxe version of it. So I think that's kind of what he had in mind. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, it's rough. Another example I can think of is Kimmet. So there was original Kimmet, and then they came out with a couple expansions, Kimmet set, and then they came out with a new rule set, Kimmet like 1.5. And then everybody was doing that, and it was pretty good. And then all of a sudden, here comes Kimmet Blood and Sand. Mm. So it's like you have the original, and then these middle ones. It's frustrating to see it when it's like a software update, you know, but it costs, it's not just like a click and download the new update. It's like a click and pay $150 to get the update. So it's, it could be frustrating. I get it. Well, here's my take on it. And I hope I'm not disagreeing with something I've said on a previous episode, because I don't remember everything from the last 173 episodes that we've recorded. But I think it's an easy answer for me. And that is that it's awesome that designers, the developers, the publishers realized that they had something that was amazing, but there was ways to improve on it. Let's introduce a new generation to this game. If I love a game, okay, let's take the Everdell. So I've got everything for Everdell, right? I love Everdell. And then they just recently released Everdell Farshore, which is in one box, kind of a streamlined, slightly simpler version of Everdell. Still great components, beautiful artwork and everything. And I think that's awesome. I think that the next person who is getting into the hobby and I say, hey, you should go check out Everdell. It's one of my favorite games. Go check out Everdell Farshore it's probably a better entry point. 
but I don't care. I'm glad that that exists because nobody should have to go and buy $150 worth of Everdellen expansions to get the best experience out of it, which I have. And I love that I have it and I don't need Everdell Far Shore as well. So that's kind of my feel on it. Now, it hasn't happened to me a lot. I'm six years into the hobby, six, seven years into the hobby at this point. So there's only been a few games where I had a first edition. But if I love the second edition enough, it, it's not that common, right? So I'll just go buy the second edition if it's that much better. Dune Imperium Uprising, I think, is a little bit of a different, it's a different beast. Because when I read the designer diaries on that, what Paul Denon was saying was that this is a lot like Clank. When, when they released Clank expansions, they basically released expansions that had new boards. And the new boards also had some extra cards with them. So if you play with the new board, you have to shuffle new cards in. It's not like it replaced the original one. It just gives you some new options, a different way to play the game. And that's what they were intending with Uprising as well. It wasn't intended to replace the original game, but it doesn't make you buy the original one if you want to play with this. But if you're already a big Dune Imperium fan, now you've got a new way to play the game. And I'm kind of excited about that. I don't know if I'm going to buy it because I don't get Dune Imperium played even as much as I could to explore everything that I've already got for it. But I would love to play it at some point. And I think it's cool that there, if somebody plays Dune Imperium every week, here's another way to kind of switch it up and change the board. And if somebody, I, I don't think Dune Imperium Uprising is intended to replace Dune Imperium in all of its expansions. Like, I don't think that's what it's for. But I think Eclipse is another great example. If somebody's got Eclipse in all of the expansions and you love that game, why would you buy Second Dawn? Don't. It's, you've got a great game as is or Kemet or whatever. So it's cool that it's somebody recognized that this was a fantastic game. It could be refined. It could be improved on a little bit. Let's do that and put it out for the next generation. Because to be honest, Kemet's a great example. You know what? Five years in, Kemet, nobody's nobody's talking about Kemet. Nobody's playing Kemet anymore. So you release a new version. All of a sudden, people are playing Kemet again. That's so cool. So I think it's all good when these new additions get released. Don't feel like you don't need to own everything. You don't need to own the best and brightest of everything. But if you really love a game, then go out and buy the updated edition and you get something that's better than what you had before. So that's my current take on it. Hopefully it doesn't, it's not mismatched from my past takes. And if it does, nobody else probably realizes that either. So don't, don't worry <laughs> about it. Now, I think I generally agree with you, Tim. And I, I'm kind of in the same boat as Adam that I don't feel like I've had enough experience with first edition versus second edition and so on and so forth that I can really make an inf really informed judgment. So I, I can sort of answer this question more, I think, philosophically. And what I would look at is what is the apparent intent of the designer and the publisher? So if you've got a game that's a great game and then there's enough things that get changed after X number of years that it truly improves the game to the point where the old version really is obsolete, then yeah, I think that's great. I mean, you can't fault somebody for saying, I'm going to take this product, realize the things that I could have done better, and then really improve it. I and mean, there's nothing that I can do to default somebody for that. Because if it makes the old one obsolete, then it really does mean that you've created a better game. And that's great. Then there's a situation where someone takes a game that may have been a truly ugly game, which has happened. LeGrand has a great example of that one. Castle Burgundy. <laughs> and then put out a revised version that is much more attractive. And for that, sort of the same thing. I can I can see that that's, you know, an opportunity for people to, you know, get in at a on a more attractive version of it or upgrade if they really enjoy the game and they don't mind spending the extra money, but you don't have to buy the new version to enjoy that game either. The only situation where I can really see faulting a publisher for doing something like this 
is if there's only very minor changes and it's obviously a money grab or obviously an attempt just to get people talking about the game again by publishing a new edition of it. And honestly, I'm not even sure if that game really exists or if they really do for, fall more into the, the categories that I've talked about. But but that's kind of my philosophical take on it. Tanta Watkins is a great example of that, Chris, actually. Because yeah. Tanta Watkins was a beautiful production and a, a great game. And they didn't really need a master set, but it's cool that it exists for people that want it. But I don't even, I don't care. I've got the original version of, I don't even care that the new one exists. And that's awesome. Yeah. If somebody wants to buy a deluxe edition of it, that's so cool. There's an interesting case of one of these, a game, an old Martin Wallace game called a study in Emerald, one that I've always wanted to play. I don't know if you guys heard of this one. Original was 2013. And then they had a, a 2015, two years later, they came out with a second edition and there's a lot of people that really enjoy the first edition more and they say it's the better game. So it's hmm. interesting. The second one has a Uno tool art and Martin Wallace is the, is still the designer on it. So, but people have claimed they've tweaked so much in the second edition, they don't even like it as much as the first. So, you know, I guess you could take a step backwards and release one of these one and a half 2.0 variations as well. Did I ever mention I was in an elevator with Martin Wallace? You did. Oh, that's right. <laughs> did you, did you ask him about it? He goes, hey, what's going on with this one, Martin? No, I, I listen, I, I think generally, like if you like the game you've got, don't worry if there's an upgrade for it. It doesn't make yours obsolete. If you, you yeah. There's a good chance that if you're feeling that way, you have 600 games on your shelf and you were never going to get that game played anyway and you won't get the new edition played either. So don't even worry about it. It's totally fine. That's a very good point. Once there's a second edition made, that means that previous edition is going to get out of print. It's going to get worth a lot more. It's going to be more coveted. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Such a mercenary way of looking at it. <laughs> All right. Well, Stephen asked, have you guys ever considered recording your live plays, audio and or video? Well, as much as... Our podcast is going to go to Hollywood and get picked up by the networks. No, I don't think that's the right choice for me. I, I, it's a lot of work. I have to clean up these Kleenexes and put on some non-sweaty clothes that don't have holes in them and get all the oil off my shirt here. So, no, I haven't thought about doing any of these live plays. I barely make it to the podcast with a voice that can grab audiences, let alone a figure. I think I think that Adam was actually referred to as having a sultry voice by one of our listeners at one point. So I'm not sure I can buy that. <laughs> but anyway. So, so Stephen, this is a really interesting question. And here's my thought on it, right? Before we started creating anything, before we started making a show, I listen to podcasts. And so the reason why we decided to make podcasts, I think Adam was right in the same boat with me, was because we were podcast listeners. And so we got passionate about it. We were like, I, we want to make a podcast that we want to listen to. We think we have a unique voice to some extent. We think we have something to stay and we think it'd be fun to do this, right? But I'm not a, I don't watch streaming video. I don't watch gameplays. I don't watch, I almost never watch YouTubes unless it's like instructional videos. So it's a little bit harder for me to get passionate or excited about creating content that I wouldn't even consume myself, like that I wouldn't even watch. You know, on the other hand, I think it'd be kind of fun. I know some of our listeners would enjoy the experience of kind of sitting through with us and and like get to play with us. But I can also tell you that a lot of the time it's probably not that interesting and we would have to work a little bit harder to make it entertaining. Yeah, we do have a fun time sometimes. Right. But we also oftentimes are playing these games for the first time. So there's a decent amount of our time that's spent like, wait, let's double check that rule and then looking through a rule book for five minutes. Or, you know, somebody with AP sitting there for five minutes and everyone else, just as someone's about to start a side conversation, then that person jumps in with, wait, I've got a rules question, guys, right? <laughs> so I don't think that our group is going to be a great at uh, at live plays. 
and also I just don't think we're I just don't think we're excited about watching them. So most likely not going to do it. I think before Chris goes here, it'd take a lot of effort. So we'd have to look good and presentable for one, which that's saying asking a lot already right there. But the way to do it in my brain would be to kind of a condensed format, like cut out kind of like a lot of editing like we yeah. do with the podcast. It yeah. takes a lot of editing and make people that talk this bad sound at least decent. So even more so with the video, I would think, and I'm I'm not ready to take that that jump uh, to cut, slice it all up and make it look good and not have these glitches and make it flow, I think would take a next level of effort. I think Adam's saying, how much are you all willing to pay us to make <laughs> this happen? Well, that's a really good point, Adam. And if anybody had any idea how much of this show ends up on the cutting room floor after we finish editing it, uh, ooh, they may they may think differently. But <laughs> my answer is basically the same. You guys already said it. It would be it's just too scary. I mean, it is hard enough for me to try to be witty and articulate, and I probably fail at that most of the time. Even just talking to you guys, trying to do that over the course of a full game, where I'm also trying to strategize and figure out rules and and actually play a game, it just sounds like a a terrible impossibility. All right. Well, Thomas asked, what are some of your other hobbies or interests? Is there a common thread in those activities that ties back to board games? Yeah, I was thinking about this when I saw this question and I have a few things. So one I've hinted at already is the music and the recording. So if you could see us, if you could see our live feed right now, you could see behind me, I have a, a keyboard and some guitar backs up there, a bass and a few acoustic and electric and stuff. And then with this editing software that we have, it's really good production software. So when I get a chance, which is very rarely, sometimes I'll go in and make some beats and then record some music or some samples and put something together, stitch something together. So I think that's fun and creative to do. I also used to, you know, back in my younger years, I used to snowboard a lot. I used to live near some mountains that were pretty accessible, Tahoe for a while, and then Colorado. So I used to hit the slopes, but these days it's, Tennis is probably my other thing that I do most. Tim's always talking about Danielle playing all the tennis. It'd be fun. I've never hit. It'd be fun to hit with Danielle. But um, over here, there's a beautiful park really close by. So I head over to the park and play tennis Tuesday nights usually. Well, for me, I... Okay, so right now, board games is my one hobby that kind of... It's what takes all of my thought. When I'm not dealing with other stuff, when I'm not doing work, when I'm not dealing with other responsibilities, I'm kind of thinking about board games. I'm thinking about... You know, what could I be playing? What I want to talk about. But one of my big hobbies right now is making a podcast, which is something that I, you know, like it's kind of a hobby and it's it's work and it's effort, but I'm having fun with almost all of it. You guys recently dragged me into some of the editing responsibilities. And when it's my week to edit, I'm actually digging it. I get it. I haven't been doing it for several hundred episodes like you guys have, but I'm uh, I'm I'm having fun with it. So I think making a podcast is something that I would call a hobby at this point. My other lifestyle choices, the things that I do out in my free time, I would kind of call hobbies, I guess. It's like I work out every day. I either run for a few miles or I go to the gym or whatever. But even then, I'm actually listening to board game podcasts. So that's kind of associated. Like that's what I do. And that's partly what makes it fun for me to do those things. And then my other big hobby is that I like to renovate houses, whether it's working in my own house. Uh, my wife and I love love to shop for real estate and buy a house and spend a couple of years to work on it, fix it up, rent it out, sell it, whatever. 
and all of that, when I'm do, I do a lot of the work myself. Like I like to be hands-on doing repairs on doing electrical, doing plumbing, doing drywall, all this stuff I do. And I'm always listening to board game podcasts. So if you want to ask if my other hobbies are adjacent to board games, it's mainly just because it gives me an opportunity to consume them and not feel guilty about the time I'm wasting doing something unproductive. My one other hobby, I guess I would say is I, I read a lot. But I never think about that as like related. I don't even think about it as a hobby. It's just kind of like part of my life, right? But right now I'm reading The Player of Games, which was a game that was which was a book that Adam recommended, and it is all about board games. <laughs> so entertaining because it's supposed to be way in the future, but their board games are much less sophisticated than our average hero today. But also super fun, super fun read. So that's associated, I guess, in some way. Yeah, this is a great question. And I have a lot of hobbies. But none of them really in any way connect to board gaming other than, you know, I think to some degree, you know, like what Tim said about doing the podcast is a little bit of a hobby in itself. But uh, for me, probably the biggest two that come to mind when I someone said, hey, what are your hobbies other than board gaming? I would say outdoor sports like hiking and snowshoeing, um, skiing to a lesser degree. Uh, my family and I love to go do all that stuff. I mean, we'll go out and we'll do a, you know, 10, 15 mile hike on a Saturday when we don't have like, you know, kids soccer games and things like that. And that's one of the reasons why we moved up to Oregon was so we'd have more opportunities to do that sort of thing, more so than we had living in the city in Southern California. So that was one of the big lifestyle reasons why we wanted to move was so that we'd have more access to that sort of thing. And I mean, Portland is amazing for outdoor activities like that. The other is playing pinball and even playing pinball competitively, which I guess only connects to board gaming in the sense that it is another geeky hobby, kind of like board gaming. We are equally geeky in the pinball world, and I actually think that's great. I love geeky hobbies. I like reading um, sci-fi, fantasy, and horror fiction, so I guess maybe that's another minor one. But, you know, other than just kind of being drawn generally to to geeky stuff like that, I don't really see any connection between my hobbies and board gaming. And maybe that's great. Maybe it's nice to have the the diversity there so that, you know, regardless of where I am, I can always find one of these things to do. It is funny that Chris mentioned horror fiction. And uh, I know that you were, uh, you know, a reader of H.P. Lovecraft. You introduced me to the books and almost every board game is based on H.P. Lovecraft's writings at this point. So <laughs> there's a link there. <laughs> it sure seems like that sometimes. All right. Riley asked, if each of you could change the theme of any game to another theme, what would it be? I have a good one for this. Riley's always asking about theme. I would change the theme of smartphone ink. And I think I've talked to you guys about this before, but I think it makes sense. The one in my mind that they kind of goes with it. It's a little bit morbid right now, given COVID and everything, but I would be some kind of, you could do an early life form or you could do a straight up virus. And each of the texts is a mutation for that virus. So whether it's growing little cilia or different ways to attack an organism, and then you can have the map is just uh, the human body. So you're trying to spread all around from, you know, this part of the body, this part of the body, this part. And you could, while you're playing it, you could learn the way, I don't know why viruses, I'm sure there's a more gentle way that like, I don't know, probiotic bacteria, how that can spread and make your brain smarter. So I think smartphone ink is perfect for one of these become the strongest virus or become like the, the super molecule, some kind of evolution thing where you're growing these different, you know, the texts along the bottom are just the different types of evolutions that you're making or mutations that you're making as your organism or your virus is growing. And then the locations, 
you know, they start adjacent. Maybe there's one that lets you run through the circulatory cardiovascular system and pop out over in, in the brain or in some lymph node or another, you can, you know, gain access to the immune system super high. I don't know. I think there's plenty of avenues to retheme smartphone ink to make it enjoyable for Tim, maybe not viruses or uh, microorganisms, but something along those lines. I think that system has so many opportunities and it's kind of being squandered. As much as I love that game, the theme is a little rough there for smartphone ink. Adam, have you ever heard of Plague Incorporated? I've heard of it. I haven't looked much into it. It's funny because, I mean, it's not exactly the same thing you're talking about because you're you're thinking of something that happens in the human body. Plague Incorporated is an app-based game that actually has a board game version. There is a board game version out there. You are a, a virus or a bacteria. You can actually choose what you're going to be. You can even have nanoviruses, things like that, that you're trying to essentially destroy all the people on the earth. <laughs> you win if you kill everybody. So you have to be careful not to become too dangerous too fast because then you'll kill off all of your your victims and you won't spread but you also don't want to get you know stick around too long because then the humans will get wise to you and find a cure for you so anyway it's worth checking out if you haven't it's a fun it's a fun app no it sounds great yeah adam this is a great pick because this is man i i love playing smartphoning but i just can't stand the idea of putting it on the table and play like it just doesn't get me excited and i think it's the theme almost 100 percent because this game is great when somebody else makes me play it i can't wait to play it but then i just never choose it so i think if it had a better theme that'd be a great fit i feel like you could take it so many places a cyberpunk matrix type theme or you know computer viruses or programs Ooh, that's a good one so many places you could take it and make it cool uh, yeah i like the idea of like hacking computer systems versus uh yeah. spreading virus i think would be more into- yeah yeah, yeah, be more down. yeah for me it's it's uh there's there's always been one game that i always thought that if it had a better theme i mean it's one of the best games ever made that's the castle of burgundy and the castle of burgundy is just such a simple action selection mechanism. And if it just had like a fun sci-fi exploration theme, bam, yeah. it's, it's done. Or I mean, there's so many ways you could spin this game to just be fun. I mean, it's pretty abstract. It doesn't really matter what the theme is. Why in the heck are we building up vineyards in Burgundy in 19 or in like 1820 or well, I don't know, 1420 or whenever the heck it was supposed to happen. <laughs> so it, it's any of these, a lot, there's actually a lot of dry euros that could be a hundred percent better. They don't, their mechanisms focused, put any theme on them. Why are we building these themes about European cities? So a lot of them could do it, but Castle Burgundy, I always thought a sci-fi theme on that one would be great. And I don't know. It's, it's so interesting though, because there are some really dry themes that people are like, Oh, if that was themed different, I'd love it. And then somebody tried to theme it differently, and then it totally failed. Uh, I'm thinking of like Ethnos was was rethemed re- Archaeology Society or something like that, Ar- Archaeo Society. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, and, Archaeo Society. Yeah, and so I never really liked the Ethnos theme, but for some reason it just misses harder in that way. And then like Biblios, which is a weird theme about like monks trying to, I don't know, write scripture. It was the dumbest theme mm. ever. And then they made it into this other game, which completely turns me off and i want to just go back to biblios so did you see they're coming out with undaunted moon i'm excited about so that instead of about um like world war ii battles and stuff it's going to be some little futuristic battle on the moon i think that'll be a lot cooler t- 
to me than old timey war stories. I'm excited about that because Undaunted always sounded like a fun game, but war doesn't really get me excited. So yeah. that's that's cool. And also another one that I think they did a great job with, which I haven't gotten a chance to play yet. So Alex- Alexander Fister had Mombasa and he turned it into, what is it, Sky Mines? But it basically it turned it into like settling Africa and colonizing Africa. And then they changed the theme into like mining like materials on the moon that's a cool switch to a theme which makes me a lot more excited mm-hmm. on a game that's supposed to have really cool mechanisms so clearly there are some opportunities to do this but yeah it'd be interesting to see how that played chris what about you what do you think should be rethemed well i don't want to be too much of a copycat but i think i'm gonna to have to fully agree with you tim that basically I'll, and i'll well I'll expound on that just a little bit Basically, anything that is themed around pre-industrial Europe, somebody ought to be thinking about whether there's something better we could be doing there. And that's pretty lame to make it, you know, draw, throw my net that wide. But a perfect example is Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Oh, it's such a good game. And fair enough. I mean, there's some interesting mechanisms in there, but it is so, so dry. And the mechanisms are so disconnected from the theme that I just can't do it. I just can't do it. But you take any other theme. I don't even have a specific theme that I want to throw on there. Almost anything else, something fantasy, something sci-fi, something anything, just anything other than pre-industrial European political intrigue just, just kills me. Now, on the more positive side, I do have a second one that I want to offer. And that is a game that I actually do like, and I do like the theme, but I think it could be even better. I think about Return to Dark Tower, and it's got this big, you know, high fantasy with the, you know, swords and sorcery monsters and the giant tower in the middle and you're moving around. It's a, it's a fun co-op game. We've talked about it a bunch. What if you took that and made it into some kind of a space themed scenario where this giant tower is this big 2001 type obelisk and you're trying to do whatever it's on the moon or on another planet or something like that. Or you have, you know, that's a, or maybe it's a planet Uh, the board is the area of space around it. And you're trying to fight off aliens. And that could be so interesting. And to me, sci-fi is always a notch better than even high fantasy. So I think that would be a fun change. Maybe they'll do that for return to dark tower three which I guess would be Return to Dark Tower 2, which would be Dark Tower 3. I, guess. I thought for sure, Chris, you were going to say, take the fantasy theme off and put like a uh, like a Burgundy Vineyard theme. <laughs> or Cthulhu. Hey, Cthulhu, what about that? Oh, there you go. Cthulhu. Pre-industrial Europe. Right on. All right. Well, Seth asked, what makes a good rules teacher or a good teach? There's so many ways to approach the teach. So what are some best practices? Movement rules and locations first. Game pieces and iconography first, resources first. So he expounded on this a bit and just said that he really struggles. He always feels like he gets jumbled about his teach. So any tips on teaching games? This is a tough question, a great question. And a lot of people spend a lot of effort into this. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a teacher. My grandpa, I had a lot of teachers in my family. So being able to teach something or explain something to people in a way that's helpful or useful is a is a big thing that, you know, an idea I put a lot of thought into that probably doesn't come through in my rules teaches, but I, this is what I try to do with my rules teaches. And I know I need a lot of work on this as a rules listener. One of the biggest things I want to know is flow of the game. Like I see all this stuff and what's happening, 
And what am I going to do first? Like, what's how do I get this game going? What's the first? Where am I going to put a thing? What are my actions I can do? So I think I like to know what actions, what am I going to actually do to flow myself through this game? How is it all going to go? Am I going to do a thing? And then Chris, am I going to do two things? Am I going to do three things? And then somebody else goes, what's the flow? And then once I understand that, then, you know, to learn the flow, a lot of times you have to know what the pieces are. Oh, you're going to take your workers. In this case, this type of worker is an engineer. This guy's a scientist. This guy does this. This guy does this. So that might all be part of the flow. So you can see it. I'm already getting jumbled in my thoughts here. So I like to know the flow of the game. And then when I'm learning that, like the different workers that are going to flow here, the card, it's going to let me do this thing. So get me through a round to walk me through a round of the game. And I think that is super helpful. And I guess if you want to talk about a couple things, some things you might need to know or terminology before you walk through a round, but then I got, I think a round walkthrough is the most important to me. And then I also want to know how to score points. What is my, where are my points going to come from? Especially if it's a game that Tim or Chris have played five or six times, you know, tell me the things I need to be thinking about to be competitive. Give me some of those rookie mistakes, you know, how you need to get shoes for clank would have been a good one. Um, <laughs> stuff like that. The, the need to knows to be a little bit competitive at the game. If the game is so broad, I need some direction to go for at first. So some games do this. They'll hand you a little card or something that says you get 10 points if you finish this little goal. So that gives you a nice little direction to go towards. But if there's nothing like that going on in the game, a little point. So, hey, Tim, I know it's the first time playing Smartphone Inc. Maybe try to get lots of tech here in round three. That'll get your engine going. Always nice to get your engine going first. That'll let you spread across the map and get more money and sell more phones. So, yeah, that's to me the biggest thing. And then, of course, how are you going to teach all the iconography? Is it going to be uh, self-evident, self-explanatory as you're going on? Or is it going to be confusing and weird? It's hard. A good teach is hard is the short answer. Seth, this is such a tough question to answer. And the reality is, is that I I don't even think through it very much. Like when I plan to teach a game, I don't plan how I'm going to teach it, but I think I know why it works. I, I think I'm a pretty good teacher and I think I know why it works. And so here's, I was thinking through this and thinking about how I usually teach. And what I usually start with is a little bit of theme. What are we doing here? And then what's the end goal? Basically, set up the game. Okay, I'm going to talk about Voidfall, right? I had to teach this. This is one of the heaviest, most rules-heavy game you can teach, and I've had to teach it a few times. So first thing is, hey, we're different civilizations trying to survive against this, you know, this force of aliens that are invading the galaxy. And then what are we doing? We're trying to collect points. It's represented by this icon here. Then jump into what are you actually doing on your turn? And most games have a couple clear choices to make. If they're a good game, that's how they work. Voidfall, what's the first thing I jump in with? So really the gist of the game is most of your turns are going to be look at this hand of cards you've got, pick two of the three options on one of the cards and play them. Here's the cost, here's the benefit. Castle of Burgundy, you're going to have these two dice. You pick one of the dice and use the pip on that to either buy something or sell or put something into your, you know, into your main area or you use the other dice. So it's like focus on what do the what are the main actions you're taking and then get in into the minutia. Like don't worry about all that minutia early. Don't like jump in and start explaining every icon. Don't jump in and start explaining what's the end game trigger, all of this stuff. Really you want to pe- get people wrapped around what are they doing on their basic turns, on their average turn. And I think most games if it's a good game, Lords of Ragnarok is a great exception to that. But if it's a good game, 
you've got a couple clear choices to make on your turn. Nucleum, which is a very heavy game. I just had to teach that again this weekend. And it's basically like most turns, you're looking at these action tiles. You're either putting it at the top of your board and taking both actions or you're laying it as track and taking one of the actions if it matches. So most games have a very clear action choice to make. And I like to focus on that. And then once everybody's got their head wrapped around that, then jump into the, some of the minutia they need to know. Maybe even don't even teach a lot of minutia until you're a turn or two in. If it's not relevant to their important decisions they have to make, yeah. why tell them about what the end game triggers are until you're a turn or two in? Why tell them about this thing that will never happen until halfway through the game, until they're kind of into it? And I don't mind pausing people and saying, guys, we're at a great point. Let me stop you. I'm going to explain something that's going to be coming up in a few rounds or by the end of the game, you probably should know this. I think that works really well. So Seth, I hope that helps, but I I don't know if it does because it's not something I put a lot of thought into. It just it just it kind of has to flow from your gut. You have to teach it the way you would want to learn it, I think. Yeah, I actually um, have put a lot of thought into this for the games that I've taught. And yet I think my answer comes out pretty much the same as what Tim's does. Although I think I have enough of a nuance to say that I'm not being completely repetitive here. But first, just a a shout out to people who are good at teaching games because every game group needs to have at least one. Tim is a very good game teacher. I always appreciate when he teaches a game. It's clear, it's understandable, it, it makes it more fun. My friend Eric, who's in my local game group here, is another great teacher who I really appreciate when he's able to teach a game. I'm an okay teacher, but I'm I'm not top notch. These guys are so so. Thanks to all the, the good game teachers out there. When I sit down to teach a game, I always feel like it's important to understand what the end goal is going to be. So, in other words, you're going to be doing all of these things. What is that in service of? So, I'll just use it as an example: barrage. In Barrage, if I'm teaching this to somebody, I want them to have a little bit of the theme, but I want them to understand that really what you're trying to do throughout this game is you're trying to produce energy, and you're going to produce energy with water, which is going to flow down the board. And in order to do that, you're going to have to build this infrastructure, which is going to include your conduits and your dams and your power stations. And so everything else we're going to be talking about is going to be related to putting those pieces on the board so that you can collect water and you can turn that water into electricity. Once people understand that, then they can understand each turn you're going to be taking one or more workers and you're going to be putting them on the board essentially in some basic worker placement. And then that leads into, and here's what all the different worker placement spaces do. I've had times when somebody was trying to teach me a game And they start right in with the worker placement space and saying, well, this one lets you get this thing and this one lets you get this thing. But I'm sitting there going, but wait, why do I even need that thing? What's that for? What's the point of taking that action? So you have to, I think, start with at least some overarching goal, some overarching point of everything. And from there, you know, there's enough different types of games, enough different mechanisms that there really is a lot of Uh, You really have to nuance it to the game that you're playing. And maybe that's, you know, to Tim's point about going from your gut. But I think it always helps to start by explaining to people what the overall point, what the overall, what the, the primary activity is in that game. Great call, Chris. All right. So last question of the night. Brian asked, what do you think of tabletop simulator versus board game arena? And I had to include this one in in this first mailbag episode or email episode or inbox episode or whatever we're going to call it, because I think we're all pretty passionate about this one. Yeah. Do we even really need to answer this one? (laughs) Well, I have some thoughts about this one, actually. I think 
Oh, so the, okay. I thought it was tabletop simulator versus tabletopia. No, nope. well, that would have been phew, nope, no brainer. On uh, <laughs> this should still be a no brainer. Should be a bigger no brainer. Yeah, this is a bigger no brainer. <laughs> Board game arena all the way. It's just so quick and so lightning fast. It is kind of less of the board gamey feel because it just kind of guides you through and walks your hand. If you're not sure what to do, you can just click here and click here and click here. And then you've done a turn, whether it was a good turn or not, you might not ever know unless you've read the rules and you know what you're doing. But so many times I've done that. Like for instance, I'm going to talk about planet unknown later tonight. That is coming on board game arena. If not fully there already, I've had the box sitting in my collection forever. Finally got to play on board game arena. Oh, figured out some mechanisms. This is how it works. Now I open up the box. I know where everything goes and what to do, how to set up. So it can be, one can kind of be conducive to the other. So first few clicks on Planet Unknown, I didn't know what I was doing. That first game with Tim and Sarah, no clue what was going on. And then second game, oh, this is what's going on. Third game was Sarah. Now we're getting competitive and finding some neat little combos. Let's break this thing out and play this, you know, play with this lazy suit. I've already talked about it enough. Anyway, Board Game Arena for me is so much better if the game is available, I'm going to go to Board Game Arena every time. The great thing about Tabletop Simulator is almost every single game is available to investigate. I've done this before where a lot of Kickstarters put their games on there. Am I going to back this thing? Well, let me go run through a couple of rounds first on Tabletop Simulator to see if it's any good. Or if I'm going to go play Gaia Project with Tim. Now, Gaia Project's over on Board Game Arena too, but it wasn't at the time. I could go on TTS, open up Guide Project, run through the rulebook, take a couple turns. Oh, now I see how these couple factions work, and I'm going to know what to do when I actually play this game with Tim. So pluses and minuses versus both. They each have their own individual thing that I think they excel at. Overall, for the most part, I'm going to go with Board Game Arena if I'm going to play games with you guys. And it's so easy and so fun. So yeah, in general, Board Game Arena. Yeah, first, neither of them replace an in-person game experience for the most part. Right. There are some advantages, like the setup and teardown of a game is a pain in the butt, right? There's no doubt about it. That's part of our modern hobby. The heavier the game, the more components of it, the more time it's going to take. And if you don't enjoy that, that's a pain in the butt. So the nice thing about both of these platforms is that you just click start and it's set up for you for the most part. But actually playing the games is never quite as fun as being in person. That said... Board Game Arena does a couple things really well. One is that you can play asynchronous. I can take a turn, then two hours later you can take a turn, then I can take a turn. So we can just, it gives me a way to play games nonstop. I always have games running. Every time I have a few minutes, what I don't know what else to do, I can take a look, oh, what games do I have available to take a turn on? And I love that because I love playing board games. So Board Game Arena is, is great for that. Tabletop Simulator, on the other hand, is basically a physics engine. It's not enforcing any rules of the games. It's essentially making you having to manipulate the components with your mouse. And moving things with your mouse is dumb compared to moving things in real life. So it's frustrating. It's a pain in the butt. It's like, no doubt, I'm going to knock over 15 things every time I try to move my meeple across the board. And that sucks. And it takes so much longer. But it does give you a chance to try some things. In our case, specifically, we've had to use it uh, since most of our game plays are online because we all live in different places. So if we want to talk about games that we played together, Tabletop Simulator is the main place we can do most games because they're easy to put up there. They don't require any programming, whereas where Board Game Arena does, and that's why there's less games there, and it takes more time for people to get their games up on there. But I would 100%, if somebody said, hey, I want to play Arc Nova with you, don't even mention Tabletop Simulator. Don't even bring it up because there's no way I'm going to play Arc Nova with you on Tabletop Simulator when it's sitting on Board Game Arena 
even if we live halfway across the world from each other. So BGA is a clear preference for me, but they both have reasons to exist. And I, I'm glad they both do. If they, if they didn't both, our podcast might not exist. I would have had a lot less interesting games with you all if both of them didn't exist. There are really, in my mind, only two reasons to ever play a game on Tabletop Simulator. And this is, I'm assuming that playing live is not a, is not an option, being there in person. So if you're starting with the premise that we're going to be playing something online, it's going to be between one of these two platforms. The only two reasons I would ever choose something on Tabletop Simulator is because one, it's not on Board Game Arena, which you guys both said. And number two is if you have some special interest, like we occasionally do for a game, where you want to really understand the rules or the setup or the sort of the physics of the game, because I've definitely played games where I have uh, I've only played it on Board Game Arena and I don't have a really full understanding of all the rule nuances and the scoring and all that because I didn't have to learn that. The game took care of that for me. And then I sit down and play a live game, say on a, on a board game table with that same game. And there are things I have to look up because I've never had to do this myself before. So I have to refresh my memory on things. Not usually to me a good enough reason to go play on Tabletop Simulator, but I, I guess that's something where if that really mattered to you, then that might be a reason. Uh, just a little disclaimer here. Chris has never talked about a game on our show that he didn't understand the full rules on because he only played on Board Game Arena. That goes for all of us. I promise. I swear. We've never, <laughs> we've never done a hot take review without fully understanding the rules. <laughs> all right. Just kidding. Uh, all right. Well, thanks, everybody. That was great. That, was, that wraps up our inbox discussion tonight. We have a whole bunch more questions from listeners that we'll bring into another episode sometime in the future. This was really fun to talk through these questions. Great, great questions from you all. If uh, any of you listening have not sent us a question, feel free. Send me a question at tim at boardgamehottakes.com. And we'll include it in our next episode or maybe the one after that. Otherwise, let's jump into some games that have been on our table right after this. All right, welcome back. So before we jump into games on our table, just a quick announcement. The day that this episode releases is Monday, December 4th. This Friday, December 8th, I'm going to be a guest uh, on the episode of Board Game Geek Show, the uh, Board Game Geek podcast hosted by Candace Harris. So please listen in this Friday and uh, would love to have lots of listens on that show. I'm, I'm really excited to be on the show. I'm, I'm a fan of it. I think it's a great show and hoping that you get a chance to listen in. It is going to be some discussion about some, maybe some games you've heard me talk about as well as our board game geek coverage, but I would love to hear your ears on it and uh, I'll try to cover some elements that we haven't already talked about. All right. With that said, let's jump into some games that have been on our table. Okay. On my table has been a game called Planet Unknown. I just mentioned it I know two minutes ago, but... This game is designed by Ryan Lambert and Adam Reberg and published by Adam's Apple Games. I've had this deluxe version sitting on my shelf for probably a year now. I remember hearing Tim talking about it. I took a look at it and it sounded amazing. It sounded really cool to me. Also had a few other reviews that had something to do with it too. So I picked it up finally and 
now it's on board game arena so you know what i want to play this thing i invited tim to a game invited sarah to a game so we could click through and figure out how this thing works and what you have is this lazy susan in the game it's called the space station but it's abbreviated the acronym is susan and you're spinning this thing and there's sort of six sections on it six wedges if you like uh, trivial pursuit style but not really you can't remove them or anything but each of these six sections has sort of a a large polyamino tile and a small polyamino tile if you don't know what that is that's like these tetris style pieces that'll fit on a grid so everybody takes turns rotating the space station or the susan and then you're grabbing a tile out of there putting it on your planet and you're trying to do that better than anybody else associated with this there's a few different terrain types so anytime you put that terrain type on your planet you get to advance the corresponding tracker over on the right side advancing the tracker gives you bonuses for this and that and that sounds boring right put tiles here and traction but really this game is just specifically polyominoes and trackers and none of this other funny business to get in the way there's a couple little goals that you're competing for maybe you're going for the biggest plot of greenland or a three by three section of city or the most contiguous rover chunk on your planet so just small little goals like that they give you something to go for otherwise you're trying to combo up your tracker maybe if i go up the black tracker it lets me go up any other tracker that i want to now boom that lets me go up the green tracker that gives me a single little piece a single little patch like from patchwork and now you can put that wherever you want and fill in a gap the more rows and columns you have totally filled in the more points you get some of these tiles come with meteors. If the tile's like super good, usually there's a little meteor penalty. You got to send your rover around on your planet picking up meteors so that you can score those complete rows and columns. And maybe along the way for your sieve track bonus, the black track I was talking about, you picked up some cards that give you five points for every three meteors instead of the original one point for every three meteors. So it's stuff like that that's happening in this game. Super simple rule set with some goals to go for and build towards along the way you get to drive around these cute rovers you got these life pods that are chunky and you've got some chunky meteors so a great production this thing does polyomino laying and track climbing in a super simple super succinct way that i really really enjoy and sarah is incredibly good at that's plant unknown sarah kicked our butts on our last board game Maria game with this, like doubled my score and it was so ridiculous <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i played this game in person a couple of years ago and i talked about it on the show and then it's on board game arena now so adam recently invited me and i'm kind of refreshing on the rolls this game's so fun, so fun. I, it's it's exactly what i remembered which is kind of like silly nonsensical decisions i'll place this tile here it's not very restrictive you have to place tiles next to each other but you don't have to like match up colors or anything like that it's super simple all you do is you play a tile and you get the two bonuses listed you move up these two tracks but it's just fun the tracks you're going up and then this track triggers this track which triggers this track some little engine building i hate leaving the meteors on my board i hate leaving the life pods yeah. on my board i probably lose every game because i just can't get past that i want to clean up my board every time this is a this is still a f- super fun game for me i think it's great this game is really pretty too adam it looks like a lot of fun and i love the idea of a polyomino game that doesn't have a whole bunch of other junk going on that's kind of streamlined and, and you know kind of midweight and but you get to put the polyominoes down because i just I love me some polyominoes. Yeah, I think you dig this one, Chris. It's relatively casual. You're just, oh, okay, I'll take this giant piece. It goes pretty well right here. 
there's not much fighting or doing anything. You're just, it feels good. The whole time you're playing this game, you're like, man, I'm doing good things. Look at my planet. It's so pretty. And then boop, game's over and you lost to Sarah. The fun, the, yeah. And the funny <laughs> thing is like, so I haven't, on board game arena, it's a little harder to pay attention, but I'm always just kind of picking the best tile for me. But I remember playing in person because you move that lazy Susan and you're forcing the other players to take certain things. Yeah. So there are times where you will not even move it where you want it. It's like move it where nobody else gets any benefit or move it so that they're going to get the tiles that they don't want or that they're forced to get meteors on them or something like that. Uh, so it's a it's an interestingly interactive game as well for a pretty light game if you want it if you want it to be. But I think you could play with a family and completely totally. like nobody would even pay attention to that and still have a fun time where everyone just like they take a move and pick their thing and everyone else gets something at the same time. Tim, are you comfortable with that level of people picking on each other? <laughs> <laughs> These days, I'm okay. I've I've learned to accept it. Okay, this good. is exactly my right level of people picking on each other. Nice. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, my game that I've had on my table this week, I finally got the new expansion for Arc Nova play. This is Marine Worlds, uh, Arc Nova, and its expansion was designed by Matthias Wig. And in the United States, it's published by Capstone Games. Arc Nova is one of my favorite games right now, and I love to play it. I probably have played it 50 to 60 times at this point, quite a bit in person, but also a lot on Board Game Arena. Constantly have several games running there. And the, the reality is that this game doesn't need an expansion. It's a near perfectly fun and variable game that you could play infinitely and never run out of stuff to do. And I, I, this is one game where I played it so much and yet never feel like, oh, I saw that card already. I wish there was another card in here. But they made an expansion and it adds variability and I like variability in games. So this was very interesting to me. And it adds both a little bit of variability, but also a couple modules that change up the gameplay a little bit. In surprisingly, I think, pretty good ways. First of all, there are a whole bunch of new animal cards, but these are mostly based around marine creatures. And the way you usually interact with these creatures is that they have a new restriction, a placement restriction. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details of Arc Nova, by the way. We did review this game about two years ago. So if you really have no, no idea about Arc Nova, first of all, what rock have you been living under? And second of all, go listen to our review from two years ago and you'll hear all about the rules. Let's assume that you know how Arc Nova plays though. So with the uh, with the Marine Worlds expansion, a lot of the, almost all of the animals that you're going to get in this deck are going to be marine creatures and they have a new type of enclosure. This is a new basic enclosure you can build before you flip your building action card. And this is a kind of a, a little aquarium. And there's two sizes of aquariums. There's a two tile aquarium and there's a five tile aquarium. And you can only have one of each on your board. So think of them a little bit like the petting zoos in the base game where you can always play them, but you can only play one per size and certain animals can only go in those. So that's interesting, right? It adds some variety. But what, what's the problem with a big deck of cards and a bunch of different creature types and, and icon types and stuff like that? What happens when you add a whole bunch more in there? All of a sudden, you're not finding the cards you need. So how did they try to fix that here? There's a little tidal wave icon on most of the cards that came with this expansion. And anytime that tidal wave comes up, then you you basically clear the first card in the card row that's available for people to buy. So you have a lot more churn in the card row that's happening. I think that's probably intended both to support this expansion, but also because a lot of people complained that they couldn't find the cards they wanted. Personally, I think that second complaint is nonsense. There's plenty of ways to find the cards you need in Arc Nova. And sometimes it pisses me off when the card that I was just about to buy from the market just got wiped away because of that tidal wave icon. So I don't know that it's all good, but it's fine. You get to see a lot more cards, a lot more variety here. The second thing that happens on these uh, basically aquarium creatures is many of them have a little tidal 
icon, a little reef icon on them. The reef icon is interesting because if you have a reef critter in your zoo, the first time you play it, you get the benefit that's indicated by that reef icon. Maybe it's get three coins or maybe it's get an X token or whatever. But every time you play a reef icon after that, you trigger all your reef icons. So that's a fun little engine building mechanism that didn't exist in the base game. So that's fair. That's fine. That's all fine. It's it's good. It's fun for more variety in the deck. I don't think it was necessary. It's a change and I'm fine. The first game I played of this, I saw like two of the aquarium cards in the entire deck because of course it's already 150 cards. The second game I played, there was like 15 of them. So I had to build an aquarium and I triggered all these reef icons. So it's going to vary game per game. And that's the same thing that happened in the base game. That's fun. You find what is coming up in the game and you play around it. Here's where the game really shines though. You know, the base of the game is taking these five action cards, taking one of them and using it at the power that it's at. Well, the expansion adds a whole bunch of varied cards that you draft at the start of the game. So everyone has their five basic action cards and you draft three of them, keep two of them, and now you have two cards that replace your base action cards. So let's say your association card, for example, I got this in my first game I played, was a new association card and it had a special ability on it. It worked exactly like the original association action, except that when you played it, the five power space Instead of taking the conservation action or one of the lower ones, you could just get one of your additional association action uh, workers. So that was fun, right? Sometimes those cards at, at certain times, they're not, they don't do anything. Well, this gave you a new use of that card at certain conditions. And I would be the only one in, in that game that had that card. And then when you flip the card, instead of giving you an association worker, instead it said you could put another association worker to, re to reduce the, the power cost of that action by two. So kind of let you build up your association workers faster and then potentially get discounts on them later. And in any case, all these action cards, there's about 25 of them in this little pile. You're going to draft in every game. You might end up with two slightly different cards that impact the bonuses. I think this is great. This is really going to, the, the couple of games I played, it really changed how I valued these cards, how I valued which ones should be flipped over first. You know, it, like whether or not some actions were valuable for me in certain turns. So this was a really fun way to change the variability and I think the best part of the game. The other thing the uh, the expansion adds is a bunch of variety in the little power, the tokens you get by getting up the conservation track. They also tell you to put one at the end of the the uh, the little hat track, like the 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 track, the, the prestige track or whatever it is, reputation track. Like so at the end of the reputation track, normally when you get to the end, you would just get an appeal. If you got to the end of that track, every time you get there, the first person gets there now gets one of these little tokens that gives you an extra bonus mm. but there's more variety in those bonuses and that's fun there's more variety in the end game scoring cards there's more variety in the goal cards that you're going for so that's all great stuff and then they upgraded some of the components so instead of your your like seven conservation or eight conservation tokens that you would usually do move over they're usually just cubes of your color now they're little animals and i usually play black in arc nova and the black is penguins, and they actually have some white screen printed on their belly. So they're adorable little penguin tokens. Your appeal track marker now looks like a ticket. Your uh, conservation track marker looks like a little badge. Your your reputation marker looks like a little graduation hat. So like minor component upgrades. So if you love Arc Nova and just want to upgrade some components, get this expansion. If you love Arc Nova and want some variety in the card deck, get this expansion. If you love Arc Nova and want to you know, change the way the actions work, get this expansion. If you like Arc Nova and you play it a bit, a couple times a year, you don't need this expansion. It doesn't drastically change the game. To me, it doesn't fix anything that needed to be fixed. 
Nothing needed to be fixed in Arc Nova. If you don't like Arc Nova, you're not going to like it because of this expansion. But if you love Arc Nova, you should get this expansion. Yeah, I love Arc Nova, and I really like the idea of more content. I like the idea of more variability. That sounds like a, a great choice. I suspect Adam would disagree. Yeah, take it or leave it on this one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I've uh, I got a couple of games I'm going to talk about. Just real quick shout outs here because they're games we've talked about a million times. But I just want to give a little bit of you know my recent experience with them. The first one is Azul, which is one of our perennial favorites. This is a game that I've played a million times, but I've always played it either on somebody else's copy or I've played it on BGA. But finally, for my birthday, uh, my wife and son bought me a copy of the actual physical game. And we went away for the Thanksgiving holiday and we brought that with us and we must have played, I don't know, 10 games of that. It was so much fun. And it's a game that I just, I love playing it. On BGA, I love playing it live. And unlike so many of the games that we play, the setup on this thing is so minimal. This game is just so so easy to set up. I love that. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And I never feel like I'm being beat down by the setup on it. And the game itself is just an, an absolute delight. The other thing it made me think of, though, was that they also have now, I saw a, um, a travel version of this with, I believe, little spaces where you can click in the tiles and... You know, it's kind of like those old you know, travel battleship games that used to have where everything kind of fits into this you know, the little packet where uh, with all your pieces. I think I would actually like to get that one as well, because strangely, Azul is one of the few games that I know or that I have that people who aren't board gamers tend to know. So I've been on trips with people in the family who don't play board games at all. And I've been surprised to see that they actually know Azul. So I'd love to have the little travel copy of this one to bring with me uh, when I go places. The other game that I wanted to give a shout out to was Agricola, which should, by all rights, have fallen into that category of pre-industrial Europe, change it up, chuck it out, do something cool with it. And yet I still love this game. Uh, Tim and I have been on kind of a rotation with this one recently, and I'm so charmed by it. It may have something to do with the tightness of the economy, which I, you know, by itself, I would generally say makes me feel a little bit frustrated and it feels so tight in this game. But what it ends up meaning in this situation is everything you do that you actually accomplish ends up feeling so big and so good. Like when you plow that field and then you plant pumpkins in it and you've got like a field full of pumpkins or you finally get that house upgraded, or you finally build that extra room on the house, or you finally had that kid you've been wanting. Oh, man, all of that stuff feels so doggone good. I, I love this game, and it is one of the rare, rare occasions where something with a theme so dry still feels so satisfying to me. So I am really digging some Agricola right now. Chris, I can't speak to your passion on Agricola, but I can speak to your passion on Azul. What a great, my dad was in town for Thanksgiving this week. And we got a few games of that in. I want to speak to your requests about the travel Azul. We have that and oh. it's great. And we've taken it with us before. So it does have these little dents on the bottom. So the pieces will kind of stay in, in, uh, in place. And there's no dangly trackers. There's a slide for keeping score. So it's really easy to keep your score. Be careful when you get the box though. It comes with this kind of the hanger, you know, the display on the rack hanger that's kind of integral to the whole thing. You need the box 
all the pieces are going to go. So that blue, there's a blue flappy hanger thing that maybe exacto knife that thing out or cut that thing off with a nice pair of scissors. You don't need that, but you still need the rest of the box to hold the baggie and the game board and all the little tiles and stuff. So mostly good about the little travel thing. Just that little annoying blue flap. Be gentle with that. I think, I don't know, probably me got a little hasty and ripped it open right away. Now I have this half ripped little thing that's part of the box. So yeah, what a fun game, Azul. So Adam, give me the inside scoop for someone who owns the big box version. And I say big box with air quotes because it's not really that big a box. For someone who owns the basic version of this game, is it worth the investment to get the travel version. Yeah, it's small enough and you don't want to get your big components night. If you're taking to the beach, you want to get sand on them or anything or uh, on your player boards or in the box. So my set's a little blinged out. I have like the kind of scrabble tile holders mm. for the at the tiles as they go in on the row. So in case you sneeze or bump it, no tiles are sliding around. Um, so yeah, I'm going to leave that one at home. I got the little travel as one. I think it's 20 bucks, 20 bucks mm. for this thing. And you take it with you. It's worry-free and it's fantastic. Adam, you're passionate enough about Azul. I think it's time for you to get, if you guys haven't seen this, there is an Azul Giant version. <laughs> and I got to see this at BGGCon this week. Somebody had it on the table and it literally comes in a briefcase size box for it. Massive tiles, massive factory files. Have you seen this, Adam? And why have you not bought this yet? I have seen this. I will never get this. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a very novel thing. See, I want to check it out and move these giant pieces around, but I will never get giant Azul. I just want to look at how beautiful those enormous <laughs> tiles are. Well, Chris, I'm I'm really excited about your enthusiasm for Agricola, especially considering how badly I beat you every game. I'm looking forward to when you get competitive with me. Just throw that in there. Uh, but I would... <laughs> I'd love to keep playing it with you. Based on that commentary, maybe you won't be playing it anymore. <laughs> oh, online randos, please save me from Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got to say, though, I got a, I got a friend, Mark, who uh, he's a listener to the show, and, and we've been playing together recently. And on Board Game Arena, he beats me at everything badly. And I cannot win a game of Agricola against him at all. So, Chris, believe me. I feel the same way with Mark as you do with me, and yet I still love playing with him. So anyway, glad you're playing it. Glad you're enjoying it. Great game. Love it. All right. Well, that will wrap up our games that are on our table this week. Uh, we have a couple quick Apple podcast reviews I'm going to read. And first, I wanted to mention that good old Slippery Pick, who a couple weeks ago we mentioned his great review where he left a two-star <laughs> review. He did reach out to us on Blue Sky. He made a mistake and he has fixed it. And we now have a five-star review right. from Slippery Pick. So thank you very much for that. We also got two more great reviews this week. The first one was from Ben One Music. The title was Always a Pleasure to Listen, Five Stars. This podcast is informative and the hosts are well-spoken and polite, staying on topic and offering diverse opinions on a wide range of games. They're genuinely respectful to each other, even though I get the sense that they sometimes feel they're being too hard on each other. And last but not least, they're respectful to the listener. Thank you, Ben One Music. That was an awesome review to read. And I and we, we appreciate it. We love these comments. These reviews are fantastic. It's amazing that they keep coming in. The next one that we got this week was by Adam T. Williams. And the title was Stumbled Upon Glory. And the it was five stars. And the, the review said, I'm a big board game podcast fan, and I've popped around to the Secret Cabal, Blue Peg, Pig Peg, and Board Game Brawlers, RIP. 
but the algorithm decided to point me in your direction. I've loved your concise and varied opinions. It has been a nice additional listen to my week. Thanks for what you guys do. First of all, I wanted to mention that personally, I've been in this hobby for like five or six years, and those were all the podcasts that I really got introduced to to start with. And I've been listening to, for the most part, uh, RIP Board Game Brawlers, but it's amazing to be listed among them. Secondly, I don't think anyone's ever called me concise in my life. So I, I'm going <laughs> to like chalk that up to Adam and Chris's amazing editing on the podcast to make it sound that way. So thank you so much, Adam. That, that was an awesome review also. And I don't think anybody's ever used the word glory to describe anything I've done before. So <laughs> wow, that's flattering. Better stick with the show, Chris. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening and another great week of hanging out with us. Hope you get a chance to listen in this Friday on the Board Game Geek podcast uh, and my appearance on there. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye.